you're listening to the You're Crazy Professor, But It Might Just Work amazing podcast. Episode 9, The BTK and Criminal Profiling. This episode looks at a very important part of the BTK story, asking why criminal profilers were unable to identify and stop the BTK killer, given how much they knew about his crime scene behaviours and subsequent communications with him. To understand this aspect, we need to take a deeper look at criminal profiling and the apparent flaws within. Why was the BTK serial murderer not caught by the might of the FBI and Kansas police, who were working closely with the criminal profilers who were on his tail for almost 30 years? BTK killed 10 people that we know of, and he was still at large almost 30 years after his first murders occurred in 1974. He wrote to the police and local news agencies dozens of times during the three decades he was at large. He terrified Wichita with his crimes and the heinous nature of the murders he was behind. Despite him sending dozens of communications to the police and FBI in the form of pictures, drawings, detailed crime scene maps, poems, word search puzzles and ciphers, he was not identified. Physical descriptions of him from credible witnesses were available, as well as an audio recording from when he called 911 to report the death of one of his murder victims, Nancy Fox, his seventh victim who he killed in 1977. Some of his initial murders were not even linked by local law enforcement, and it was BTK himself who wrote to the police via the media to inform them there was a serial murderer at large who wanted notoriety. From 1974 to 1991, BTK killed 10 people in the Wichita area, and after going silent in 1991, he came back onto the police radar in 2004 as the 30-year anniversary of his crimes was about to occur. In this respect, the crimes of the BTK can be referred to in three parts, his killing period, his silent period, and then the resurfacing and taunting period up until his capture in 2004. Despite the wealth of clues that law enforcement had at their disposal and some of the best-known FBI criminal profilers such as John Douglas and Robert Ressler working on the case in 1979 and again in 1985, identification of the BTK eluded them. The BTK was a name suggested by the killer himself in one of his many letters he sent to the local police, where he wanted to be known by the savagery of his killing. In his initial writings, he compared himself to many other serial murderers and mentioned how they all had nicknames they were known by. He suggested a number of names for himself, the pantyhose strangler and the poetic strangler among them, before settling on bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK. BTK's desire for notoriety and his need to be perceived by police and the community as an intelligent criminal genius, culminating in dozens of direct communications from him to law enforcement agents, should have led to his downfall, according to profile experts. But it did not. My argument has always been that with such a rich legacy of communications with the serial murderer, if criminal profiling really worked, it should have worked on the case of the BTK. But it did not. BTK was not caught from anything to do with a criminal profile. 
he was eventually caught by the forward thinking and patience of good local detectives and police chiefs, and he was caught by DNA, and he was caught by BTK's belief in his own invincibility after almost 30 years at large. In the 30-year case of the BTK, investigators possibly had the richest ever assembly of clues, direct correspondence, crime scene details, physical descriptions and access to FBI expertise ever amassed in an ongoing serial murder investigation. It was therefore surely the best chance that proponents of criminal profiling would have in proving the usefulness of this applied technique. It was both disappointing and surprising then that criminal profiling, done by the best of the best at the time, failed to lead to the apprehension of the BTK killer. The premise of criminal profiling is quite a simple and a very attractive, almost seductive one. Criminal or offender behavioural profiling refers to the process of using all the available information about a crime, a crime scene and a victim in order to compose a profile of the as yet unknown perpetrator or unknown subject, the unsub. Profilers such as John Douglas went further to describe profiling in simple terms. The crime scene is presumed to reflect the murderer's behaviour and personality in as much the same way furnishings reveal the homeowner's character. This is quite a claim, and makes crime scene analysis seem like the clue to the solution of identifying a murderer. Douglas has described the work of criminal profiling like, quote, delving inside the swamp-like minds of murderers. John Douglas has been unapologetic for the embedded nature of his brand of profiling, pointing out similarities between profilers and physicians and doctors who learn skills through brainstorming, intuition and educated guesswork. Douglas sees there being a lot of artistry and room for individual flair in his style of profiling. Some of the serious concerns I have written about criminal profiling involve whether there is any evidence behind the grand claims that are made and if any of that evidence is based on good scientific practice. Douglas and colleagues in 1986 argued that a criminal's personality as well as their behavioural and demographic details could be predicted from crime scene evidence and further, despite little supporting evidence, criminal profiling became widely accepted and used. These allegations here are by no means new and such criticism has been aired previously by journalists as well as other academics. Some call this the criminal profiling illusion, the successful acceptance of criminal profiling as a credible field of applied science by the public. If it looks good on TV and film, and criminal profiling certainly makes a great drama, then it is likely to be accepted by the public. A similar phenomenon has been seen with the general public's understanding and belief in the capabilities of forensic science, often bolstered by fanciful inaccuracies in TV shows such as crime scene investigation. The CSI effect is where the public are led to expect forensic analysis to be possible on almost any type of physical and metaphysical materials and for such analysis to be almost instantaneous and produced in real time. Forensic analysis is indeed impressive, but nowhere near as good as it is portrayed on TV. To be fair to the methods used by the FBI, 
there was a strong element of a systematic approach in how profiles were generated from crime scenes. And this is not a critique of that careful approach, but more it's a criticism about the source of their data and how that was processed to produce the beliefs they then espoused in general about violent offenders. In behavioural profile generation, the first phase is that of assimilation of all available information relating to the crime scene, the victim and witnesses. It's examined and includes crime scene photographs, crime scene medical reports, autopsy reports, victim profiles, police statements and witness statements, if possible. In short, no material is ruled out and everything could potentially be useful and should all be considered for inclusion as the basis of a profile. Secondly, it's the classification stage. This involves placing all of the info gained from the assimilation stage into a loose framework that classifies the murderer as either organised or disorganised in their approach and operation. This faces much criticism, but a description of the theory of organised and disorganised offenders is given here for completion. Organised murderers are believed to possess adequate or better social skills that allow them to be persuasive and they are intelligent enough to plan their crimes in advance, often leaving little forensic evidence or witnesses. They are more likely to have sex with their victims before death due to their social skills relative to their less socially skilled, disorganised counterparts. By contrast, the disorganised offender is described as having low impulse control, who often makes bad decisions and makes them too quickly. With few social skills, their crimes tend to be opportunistic and they're less disciplined, and they run the risk of leaving more evidence and more of a mess behind once they've committed their offence. We'll come back to organised and disorganised offenders in a short while. The third stage of the profiling methodology is that of behavioural reconstruction of the crime scene events and antecedents and trying to ascertain how the offender did exactly what they did as the method may reveal something of an underlying characteristic about the offender. This is the well-known modus operandi that most people are familiar with. The fourth component of the process is to look for an offender's signature within the crime scene. If anything may give an indication about the possible uniqueness of the offender and how they did what they did and why they did it. This attempts to go beyond the modus operandi and look for unique motivations, fantasies or behavioural traits that could be the key to helping identify the offender. Using the four previous stages, a profiler then attempts to synthesise aspects of the offender, their demographic characteristics, their family background, perhaps their occupational history, education and personality characteristics. Some aspects within this profile may also prove helpful should any future interactions with the offender occur, such as how best to communicate with them, how to ask the right questions, and who might the offender be most likely to want to communicate with. This, of course, is the basic of forensic interviewing. Douglas and colleagues at the Behavioural Science Unit of the FBI accrued their understanding of serial murderers by interviewing and questioning 36 convicted serial killers residing in US prisons in 1972. Douglas described the process like going to speak to Picasso when wanting to learn how to paint. A 57-page questionnaire was put to the convicted murderers that Douglas and colleagues worked through with them. 
Containing thousands of questions, they hoped the questionnaire would eventually yield similarities between the murders and possibly even lead to the identification of different subtypes of murderers, such as sexual sadists. The exact contents of the original questionnaire and the data elicited from there on in have not been made available to fellow behavioural experts or the scientific community for peer review or evaluation. The information Douglas and colleagues garnered was eventually condensed into the Crime Classification Manual in 1992 and again in 2006, and this gives some further details behind some of the ideas that stemmed from these initial interviews. Another flaw of this approach is that the FBI were consulting those serial murderers and violent offenders who had been caught, convicted and incarcerated. They were not necessarily speaking to the best of the bunch, and they may have been collecting their data from an unwittingly biased and less than adequate sample of serial murderers and violent offenders. Another flaw within this approach is that many incarcerated killers or suspects will not necessarily tell the truth when they're spoken to. It seems that incarcerated serial murderers often fall into one of two categories, those who won't talk at all and those who will say anything when asked but for the truth. Many of those convicted for murder and sexual violence will no doubt hope and aim for a future date of release and appearing to comply by talking to experts, police and interviewers is a good way of showing compliance and demonstrating an element of reform. Being imprisoned and being in police custody can be lonely, boring processes and speaking to interviewers can be a break from the tedium of prison life. Killers' versions of events will often suit the nature and circumstances of their arrests and they can be retold and editorialised by the offender in order to serve the purpose of whatever they're seeking to do. Perhaps they wish to preserve the image they've developed or they're hoping to secure parole, perhaps acquiring a book deal or attempting a prison or wing transfer. All of these can motivate prisoners to speak. Infamously, while being interviewed for the multiple murders relating to Cromwell Street in 1994, Fred West would speak endlessly to interviewing officers, often on many fanciful ramblings. He talked about angels and voices from beyond the grave. West even claimed he'd been a tour roadie for the singer Lulu on one of her tours. West's ramblings ran to over 6,000 transcribed pages of speech. John Bennett, the senior investigating officer of the case, later described West as being a, quote, bullshitting liar, who gave interviews that were worthless, except to confirm that nothing he said could be relied upon as being anything near the truth. It is only fair to acknowledge that there was a divergence in criminal profiling methods and application in the 1990s, with some newer approaches and applications having statistical and probabilistic tools at hand. But it is the form of criminal profiling that relies more on semi-clinical and intuitive premises that I question. The wet skills and street smarts that Douglas claimed are vital components of the profiling process are best accessed by those from a police background. Most research surveys of police personnel and officers show that the majority of police polled found criminal profiling to have some level of operational usefulness that they felt was both credible and useful. The methodological concerns about bias in these studies and the relatively small sample sizes in some research cannot be ignored. 
As criminal profiling has evolved and as the statistical approaches of investigative psychology have become more widespread, some of the early principles adopted by proponents have been modified or outgrown. One of the main outdated principles being the binary notion of offenders belonging to either organised or disorganised subtypes, and that such traits can be predictive of offence mechanisms. Research has shown this to be an outmoded concept of little predictive usefulness. The vast majority of people are never consistently organised or disorganised, and most people are a healthy combination of the two. Psychology is at its weakest when it tries to foist binary theories of personality onto complex human behaviours. It is widely acknowledged that offender traits are not reliably predictive of the crimes they commit, and given that murder may sometimes primarily be an ill-thought-through response to a highly charged emotional situation, it is intuitive that the usefulness of trait-based approaches will be limited. That demographic factors of offenders could be reliably predicted from an assessment of particular configurations of specific behaviours occurring in short-term, highly traumatic situations seems an ambitious and unlikely goal. Until the process is more formally verified, the evidential usefulness of criminal profile should be treated cautiously, or even perhaps entirely excluded from considerations in criminal courts. The intuitive classification of serial sexual murders by some experts as being power-assertive, power-reassuring, retaliatory, angered or excited angered looked appealing to those who liked to classify crimes, but they actually showed little validity when statistically analysed for their distinctiveness. Reviews of studies into criminal profiling show it to be little more than common sense often applied by cops with their street knowledge and wet skills, that is then reduced to deductive calculation. Prejudice with semi-scientific knobs on is another way of putting it. Regardless of how well or not criminal profiling may work, another issue concerns that of who should be doing the actual profiling. Should it be cops, academics or expert profilers? Douglas has been less than complimentary about other professions, such as psychiatrists or academics, attempting criminal profiling without the street experience that many police officers accrue in their day jobs. Studies looking at who makes for better and more accurate profilers typically find that profilers are often little better, if at all, than non-experts, students and even laypersons in predicting offender characteristics from crime scene evidence. Defenders of criminal profiling have since modified the claims of Douglas and colleagues, stating that criminal profiling does not attempt to identify a single actual perpetrator, stating that its function is to indicate the type of person responsible or being the person most likely to commit a crime with such specific and unique characteristics. This inability to deliver an identifying profile is a problem guaranteed to cause criminal profiling to stumble. This was infamously lampooned by Malcolm Gladwell when he summarised the vague and contradictory findings of the FBI profilers who'd attempted to profile the identity of the BTK from his crimes and communications with the police. In 2007, Gladwell wrote the following... Looking for the BTK, look for an American male with a possible connection to the military. His IQ will be above 105. He will like to masturbate 
and he will be aloof and selfish in bed. He will drive a decent car. He will be a now person. He won't be comfortable with women, but he may have women friends. He will be a lone wolf. But he will be able to function in social settings. He will be either never married, divorced or married, and if he is married, his wife will be younger or older than him. He may or may not live in a rental and might be lower class, upper lower class, lower middle class or middle class, and he will be crazy like a fox as opposed to being mental. Malcolm Gladwell aside, one of the harshest sources of criticism of offender profiling is when the profile is inaccurate and may lead to a miscarriage of justice or if it leads to police looking for the wrong person when hunting an offender, allowing the real criminal to continue offending. The case of the Yorkshire Ripper and the profile of Wearside Jack is a cursed reminder of this. The senior investigating officer at the time of the investigation into the Ripper murders was George Oldfield, and after having hardly any breaks in the case, he received three letters and an audio cassette recording from someone purporting to be called Jack and taking responsibility for the Ripper's crimes. Police experts and linguistic profilers were convinced the communications were genuine and from the Ripper himself. When looking for the Yorkshire Ripper, officers were instructed to pay attention to any suspects with Weir-side accents, that is, something that emanates from the north of the River Weir. The letter and cassettes had actually been a hoax, sent by someone who was not connected to the crimes in any way, and would be identified years later as a person called John Humble. The real Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, had indeed been spoken to by officers on several occasions when stopped in red light districts, but he was not suspected of being the Ripper once the absence of any Wearside accent was confirmed upon speaking to him. Conservative estimates suggest that this distraction to the investigation was responsible for the murders of at least three more victims. The legacy of some of the FBI's initial thoughts about serial murderers can make impact on murder investigations to this day. Following the disappearance of Joanna Yates on December the 17th in 2010, and then after her body was found a week later on Christmas Day, suspicions of the involvement of a serial murderer were aroused. The reasons for this suspicion can be seen to stem from the FBI's approach to profiling. Firstly, when Joanna was found clothed but frozen in a field and initially missing any obvious injuries or signs of trauma, it was reported that she was missing a thick woolen sock. Some observers and speculators assume this to be a sign that a souvenir had been taken by the person responsible for Joanna's death, and that this was a behaviour characteristically shown by serial murderers. One could argue that for the purposes that souvenirs serve and why they are sometimes taken by some serial murderers, a sock would be a very unlikely and unusual choice of souvenir when other souvenirs would be available. Secondly, Avon and Somerset Constabulary investigated similarities with other unsolved murder cases of women from the area. 20-year-old Glenis Carruthers, who was strangled in 1974, Melanie Hall, who disappeared aged 25 in 1996, only to be found dead 13 years later, and 35-year-old Claudia Lawrence, who went missing in 2009 near York. Investigators identified striking similarities 
between the Joanna Yates and Melanie Hull cases, especially in their ages and their appearances and the circumstances of their disappearances. The senior investigating officer, Steve Jones, had the very difficult task of reassuring citizens that it was unlikely that a serial murderer was at large, but at the same time he had to advise them to be cautious in their actions and who they interacted with. The serial murderer frenzy then took hold and led to some very responsible reporting by TV and print journalists that has been well documented since. Hindsight, of course, is the ally of anyone criticising how live police investigations have been conducted, and it is indeed a difficult and high-pressure job that can take its toll on anyone involved. In his book, Inside the Mind of BTK, John Douglas explained the strain placed upon himself in undertaking his type of profiling. He described that he suffered visions and night terrors when hunting for the BTK, leading to emotional and physical exhaustion, and in his case, almost death. Douglas admitted that he became paranoid that perhaps the BTK would try to harm him or his family, and the strain led to cardiovascular problems for Douglas, followed by a physical and mental breakdown. The emotionally embedded type of profiling described by Douglas is a very embedded emotional approach and not necessarily the psychological approach or scientifically, statistically deductive process we'd expect from modern investigative psychology, which has evolved from the work of Douglas and the FBI. In the next episodes, we will look into more details of the BTK story and focus on the pathological aspects to his behaviour that were behind his extreme crimes and what they could have told detectives about this serial killer who terrorised Kansas for so many decades. We will also look at some of the reasons why BTK could go for years between committing murders, how he was able to live a normal suburban lifestyle with his family and how he used his day job to enhance his offending. You've been listening to the You're Crazy Professor, But It Might Just Work amazing podcast. I hope it's been informative. I hope it's been useful.